Hello there, and welcome back to Beats by Social Work. I'm Kristen. And I'm Tiffany, your host for the show. We're so glad you came back. And for those who are tuning in for the first time, check out episode one to learn more about who we are. But a brief summary, we are both certified clinical transplant social workers who specialize in all things heart transplant and LVAD, also known as left ventricular assist device. Our goal is to talk all the things transplant and LVAD, from the social work perspective and to bring the human element back into the world of transplant for our fellow social workers and our patients, as well as professionals who may stumble in. As a reminder, we are social workers, but we are not your social worker. So we hope topics discussed here will lead you to further discussions within your own transplant team. Welcome back listeners. This is Beats by Social Work. I'm Kristen. And I'm Tiffany. So we're back at it again, Kristen. Yeah. How, How are things going for you? Busy. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Well, um, I don't know about you or where you're at, but it's hot here in Texas. And so (laughs) that's cute. Hot. What is it like? 97 there? It's actually 103. Oh, that's cute. It's 117 here. Oh, my goodness. No, no. I, I should say it has been. At this current moment, it is not. But this week, it has been uh, triple digits all week. Uh, mm. It's one of those weeks where you have to bring extra deodorant and you're like putting it on as you get into your office because it's you're sweating. But it's a dry heat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And see, uh, I will I will uh, argue with that. The dry heat makes a difference because our humid heat is nonsense. We are just just outrageous um with our heat so okay, with that being said it's after been after 100 is after 100 dry wet whatever the case might be but i'll let you have your cute 103 it's okay it's cool <laughs> needless to say i don't know about you but we have um really been seeing a lot of heat related injuries in terms of our heart patients are in fluid restrictions and what does that mean for dialysis patients and and kidney kidney failure. There's a lot going on that's related to heat and medications being dehydrated. So it's really been. Well, and don't forget our lung patients, our oxygen dependence. Uh, When it's hotter out, it's harder to breathe. When it's harder to breathe, you're using more oxygen. You're using more oxygen. It's harder to go places and and continue that independence. So yeah, yeah, it's tough on our, our end stage organ failure populations. Absolutely. So lots of hospitalizations right now. But um, from a psychosocial standpoint, you know, it does open the opportunity to revisit things with your patients. And so I'm utilizing this to find the silver lining if there is one. Well, just like it's also a, a vulnerable mention to put out the reminder for sunscreen. Um, yeah. You know, especially with our, our post-transplant patients of all, all organs, you're on those immunosuppressant medications, you need to be wearing your sunscreen. You are not immune to the sun. And in fact, uh, these medications make you at higher risk for those cancers. So wear that sunscreen. Exactly. And I'm so glad that we started off the conversation with this because it really ties into our topic today anyways, which is why we, or do we look into the medical history of our transplant patients when we're evaluating them? Um, So I'm going to start with today's quote, which thank you, Tiffany, for finding it. You found the perfect one 
the greatest mistake in the treatment of diseases is that there are physicians for the body and physicians for the soul, although the two cannot be separated by Plato. How true is that? Say it, Plato. He knew what he was talking about back then. <laughs> so I can tell I'm a toddler mom because I, I, I tried not, I want, I consciously said, do not say Plato. <laughs> His name is not Plato. <laughs> that is it, what not. your child plays with. It is not. Good job. Good job on that. But mm -hmm. you're right. We're um, today we are going to be talking about medical history and kind of bringing things back a little bit into our discussion on unpacking the psychosocial evaluation. We've strayed away because we've had some really great topics uh, in previous episodes, but today we're going to kind of bring it back around. And so um, talking about the importance of leaning into the medical history and learning about the medical history for the patient, uh, about their family medical history and, and the whys that we do it. Yeah. And you, uh, you may be asking as you're listening to this episode, why do social workers ask about medical history? It's you, um, if you're a social worker, you may find yourself inclined to say, well, that's out of my purview or, uh, it's not in my skill set. but there is in a biopsychosocial component, the bio component, which biologically that is going to be part of your medical history. It is part of a of a thorough psychosocial assessment. But more than just developing or diving into that medical history, there's other reasons why it's important. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Exactly. And in fact, we did a poll on our social media. If you're not following us, go ahead and please do that. It's a uh, Beats by SW podcast. Um, but anyways, we did a poll on there. Shout out to those that answered and found that 71% of you do, in fact, ask about medical history. But there are 14% of you that do not and 14% of you that kind of go sometimes. So what would be some reasons why we would look into medical history? Let's start with the patient's comprehension, insight, and understanding of the overall process. So as a social worker, if you may find that you're not familiar with some of the common components medically of a, a patient in end-stage organ failure or some of the things that they experience, you may not be able to fully assess what their insight is and how you bridge those gaps. So learning that yourself can be very important. But part of our assessment is, and this comes from our STSW website of the standards for a transplant social worker and what their responsibilities are. There's also great information out there in the web of, uh, from other sources as well. But um, the understanding of the transplant process, going into that comprehension, is going to be assess the patient and support system's understanding of transplant and LVAB and requiring to... That includes the follow-up care and how they're receptive to transplant counseling, education, and teaching. So you're assessing the ability for the patient to verbalize the risks and benefits and establish realistic goals and plans. So it also helps us understand what they know about their disease process. Kind of goes into that informed consent aspect. Yeah. Are they actually understanding it? But it also tells us a little bit more about their self-management and their their ability to comply in a sense that there's that C word again, compliance, <laughs> but it really does. It, it allows us to look at um, how they've managed their, their medical history up to this point, their medical course. Um, are they receptive to medical advice? 
Do they follow up with medical appointments? Do they understand the importance of medical appointments? Do they understand what's going on with their body and or um, actually follow the recommendations? So it gives us that insight uh, by having them tell us their medical history and explain that to us of what exactly you know, has been their course up to this point. And something else I'll also add too is one of the things just from a, a more generalized social work perspective, it, when you assess a patient's medical history, it can also help you discern if a symptom is related to mental health or more likely to relate to their medical history. So for example, if you're assessing just a, the general sense of social work, if you're assessing somebody, a new client's medical history, and you find out that they come to you for anxiety, but then you find out that they're on oxygen or they have high blood pressure, then knowing that the symptoms can overlap when you complete your, your regular screening tools, like your PHQ-9, your GAD-7, certain, school, certain tools like that, it may help you interpret the results differently based on what medical history is impacting their mental health. I love it. I love that you said that because what's number one when you're taking, here's a quick LCSW question for those that are sitting for boards or thinking about that. What do you mm -hmm. do first? Rule out medical. Well, and it goes back to what we always talk about too, the chicken or the egg. Is their mental health exacerbated by their physical or is their physical exacerbated by their mental health? And learning more about their medical history uh, can tell us those those things, tell us patterns. Mm -hmm. So, Tiffany, do you get a medical history? Oh, I absolutely do. I, in fact, I probably <laughs> get too much of one um, because I'm very. I learn a lot. I learn a lot about it. But um, yes, the answer is the short answer is yes. And how about you, Kristen? Do you get a medical history? I do. I do. I uh, I do have to say that there are sometimes when I fall more into that fourteen percent sometimes category, because although I I do always get a medical history, the acuity of the patient, how sick the patient is, and what what their participation in the assessment is. So, for example, if I have an emergent eval and I have a patient who's intubated, sedated, not able to participate, um, and I'm getting most of the information from the family, I clearly can't assess the patient's individual comprehension of their medical condition. So I may adapt some of my questions or how thorough I dive into it based on how sick the patient is. But one thing that I can gather from assessing the family's comprehension is also how much did the patient actually disclose their medical history to their family? Okay, and so I have to share a quick story on that one. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> because in the work that we do, I don't know about you, but sometimes it can impact our personal lives. And so when I see that exact scenario of patients that maybe were independent, uh, didn't disclose a lot to their family, and then we're trying to get that and their family really has no idea. So I've started my own little, like Tiffany's medical history to share with my family. And I said, hey, you don't need to look at this right now, but just in case anybody asks, here's my, here's my things. Yes. In fact, they make these notebooks on Amazon. I've been so tempted with Prime Day to get one, but it basically is like, open this notebook if I die. 
<laughs> and it's all, or, or if I open this notebook, if I'm incapacitated or something like that, but it's all your logins, it's oh, yeah. your will, your everything. And it goes into what you're saying. Like, don't, don't leave them hanging. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Even down to, uh, you know, substance use. I mean, that's can be considered in both camps of medical slash mental, but it is sometimes the family doesn't know. I mean, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother topic for a whole nother day, but just kind of looking into it as that of, you know, how much does that family actually know about the histories or those times where the patient says, you know, I'll tell you more about that later because they don't like talking about their medical. They don't want to quote worthy their family, right. About their, their medical things. So They'll, mm -hmm. they'll wait until the family's left and been like, well, I've actually been experiencing this for some time. I just didn't think it was that big of a deal. So I decided not to say anything. I noticed my breathing was, was a lot more difficult and challenged, but I just thought I was getting older. Yeah, exactly. And it's a very common bridge to cross in terms of how somebody is going to cope with the fact that with a transplant, you do have to depend on others. Mm -hmm. And if you were declining in health and you were more, I'm trying to think of the way I want to put it. If you were more apt to not depend on others and were fiercely independent and wanted to hold on to that, what is going to change after transplant? Oh, yes. That's but, a great topic for another time too. We should put that yes. down. Let's write that in our notebook and put it down about the hyper independence and becoming dependent. Yes. Uh, topic for another time as well, because now we're just kind of brainstorming on other episodes. Um, <laughs> asking about medical history from a general social work perspective is important too, for or from a generalist mental health perspective, because there is a lot of evidence. I mean, if anybody has read The Body Keeps the Score, there's tremendous amounts of evidence, more and more coming each day, that you're body holds on to the components of trauma. And so if you're, tr if you as a mental health practitioner, social worker, what have you in your setting are working to be a trauma informed professional in your setting, then recognizing that there are some conditions that are more correlated with a history of trauma and specifically childhood trauma. So I don't know um, if any of our listeners out there do the adverse childhood event scoring. Um, I do not because I do not, um, when a patient is urgently in the ICU, that's not necessarily in, in my perspective, the appropriate time to unpack childhood trauma. <laughs> so really? And you don't think so? Yeah. And, and what I've read about the ACE tool is that it, you do have to, as a clinician, discern what the appropriateness of screening that tool is. And so don't dig up old skeletons or don't open up wounds that you don't intend to heal as part of your wound care. So I think that's a that, great um, topic for another time too. I'm going to write that one down, Kristen. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think trauma-informed care in the world of transplant and all that is very important. Yes, it's a soapbox I am happy to jump on anytime. I was going to bring it around. Oh, good. Um, and I'm gonna jump, I'm gonna jump script a little bit. But when we talk about trauma, we talk mm -hmm. about medical trauma. And yes. so obtaining the medical history can actually tell us about potential medical trauma. The patient's experience. So by learning their story, 
when we we have them tell us, you know, I always like to say it, tell me what you, when were you first diagnosed and how were you diagnosed? And they're like, well, what do you mean with what diagnosis? I'm like, you tell me, because that helps me understand. Do they understand what led to the diagnosis? It lets me know what they went through to get that diagnosis. Some people were like, well, especially my lung patients. Well, it started with they thought I had asthma. And then they thought I had bronchitis. And so I was on all these inhalers. And so it just tells me too about how that has been that course of figuring out what they even had and then getting hit with a ton of bricks. They knew they had something, but they didn't necessarily anticipate it being this big because they were given these little diagnoses. I don't want to say little. Asthma is not a little diagnosis by any means, but smaller than IPF. Um, right. Which is idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis for, for those that aren't familiar with that. But it's it's these individuals that were minimized their symptoms, that were told that it's not that big a deal, that were told they just need to lose some weight, that were told various things um, before they finally reached someone that said, well, actually, this is what you have. And we're mm -hmm. at a point now where it's transplant or people that didn't listen. So that medical trauma plays a huge part in in us as practitioners helping the rest of the team understand like hey we need to we need to be a little bit more gracious in this situation and not saying that we aren't gracious with patients as a whole but it goes back to how you approach a patient and handle a patient is going to be different it's not one size fits all and especially those that have experienced that medical trauma that may tell us a little bit more about why they are difficult to build rapport with or why they are coming across as maybe there's some behavioral concerns when it's actually their defense mechanism. Or, um, and again, going into future episodes, exploring what that looks like in terms of their window of tolerance mm -hmm. and what, um, what circumstances within their past may have shortened or shrank their window of tolerance and also sitting in that unknown of uh, with any chronic illness whether or not it's related to end-stage organ failure or not uh, it could be autoimmune it could be any number of things but having the experience of being gaslit by certain medical professionals having uh because the the medical professional hand is doing the best they can with the tools they have but may not be familiar with um the ins and outs of end-stage organ failure the way a transplant physician or an lvad physician would um so there's there's many components that go along with that on a two-way street but i think you're you're so good at pointing out the medical trauma piece because it is under I don't want to say underappreciated because that doesn't sound like the right term, but it's basically not acknowledged enough is what I'm trying to get at. And to me, and the way I explain it is, and trigger warning for those of you who have a history of trauma and experience somatic um, triggers, uh, my, de my description of trauma may not be something you would prefer to hear at this moment. So pause if the, if, you find that that's where you stand today. But when it comes to trauma, a lot of us immediately think of the of soldiers in combat. That's kind of the birthplace of trauma and in terms of what spearheaded the 
research in the VA, things like that. So you think about a, a soldier that is in a uh, in active combat or warfare, and the sound of bullets, the flashing of lights, the uh, being in the trenches, those sorts of experiences, hiding, lack of safety. Um, there's a great author out there that, and I'll link her in the show notes, but her definition of trauma is anything that's too fast, too much, or too soon. Think about the ICU setting. You have machines that are beeping. You have fluorescent lights 24-7. You are confined to a bed most times. So to me, there is a significant amount of overlap between combat trauma and ICU medical trauma. And so looking at it from that perspective of we are working with traumatized individuals while they are potentially traumatized individuals while they are still in the trenches. A hundred percent. And I think it's worth mentioning at this point, that is one of our requirements to explain the psychosocial risks, risks, excuse me, involved with transplant and LVAD. And one of the psychosocial risks we mentioned is post-traumatic stress. And so Mm -hmm. individuals that have had post-traumatic stress from other incidents, we have to be mindful for because those could be triggered going through this process. You know, you, we talk about the ICU psychosis. Um, and to your point, Kristen, the, the noises that are happening in the ICU, things of that nature. But we also have, I, I've experienced this with patients, especially in the ICU, when their dreams are so vivid and then it becomes almost hallucinations. I've had some that may be watching the news and then they, they drift to sleep, but whatever was happening on the news, all of a sudden they're involved with. I had a very sad case of a patient sharing really tragic things that were happening on the news. And then this individual thought they were part of that and in, the, in a negative way. And so they were very upset with themselves that they would be involved in such things. And we had to reiterate, no, you, you aren't, you've been here. The hard part is there. It's really hard to explain that that's not happening, even though they may know it's not, it's so vivid for them and so real that it just, it's a leaves a lasting impression. And so that's something to be mindful of knowing what their history is medical. And I mean, we kind of digress as we love to do, but all of their history. And that's why we do this psychosocial. So in depth, Uh, I always like to say it's going to be from birth to present and everything in between, because that all plays a factor into how we're going to approach these patients, how we're going to manage our care, how we're going to develop a treatment plan. Yes, as social workers, we develop a treatment plan as well, and we help the team developing their treatment plan. So by what we learn, we're sharing with the team so that they can, from each of their disciplines, approach the patient in the most appropriate way for the best opportunities at success. And that's what it ultimately comes down to. Great way to help us take the scenic route back to the topic at hand. And I appreciate everybody for following along on this journey with us. <laughs> well, because that's the thing about social work too, that I I so love about our profession is because we are not a box, like you can't fit us in a box. The, just like how our conversations flow the way that they flow, that's the way our assessments are. I almost said go, but then I didn't want to sound like Dr. Seuss. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's a pyramid type system or situation where you start at the bottom and you start with a topic at hand, you go in with a goal in mind, but based on 
the responses based on the conversation, the flow is going to take you organically to places you may not have expected to have the skill set and basically be a mental health boy scout and have your, uh, it's not called a Swiss army knife. What is it called? There are army knives, but now the big thing is the, the multi-tool. Yes, the, the multi-tool. Exactly. We talked about medical history, how it paints a picture of medical trauma, but medical history also helps us understand their con- how they understand their condition and what's currently going on. Help us fill the blanks in, in terms of the doctors coming in and giving updates, but is the patient retaining that information? There was a study done at some point in human history that showed that under times of stress versus times of happiness, how much you, how much information you retain of what is communicated to you and that it's only, it's only like 70% or something along those lines. So when the physicians are coming in and communicating something to the patient and they're in a state of severe stress or in a, a fight or flight state, meaning that their logic side is essentially offline, how much are they retaining and how much have they retained thus far? And then to go even further, looking into neurocognitive disorders or a neurocognitive history, history of strokes, memory deficits, how does that impact their insight, what they recall from their medical trauma or excuse me, medical history, and then looking at it from that perspective too. So yes, the short answer is that this is all information that we could read in the chart. We could say CHMP, uh, history and physical, and uh, just leave it at that. But we miss out on so many other opportunities to unpack certain things with the patient. And like I said earlier, see where the conversation takes us. Absolutely. And I think that's that's worth noting, too, because I know I've had patients that say, well, it's in the chart when I ask them mm-hmm. that. And you're absolutely right. And I, I tell them and it got to a point where actually I started my conversations by saying, you know, I know that your information is in the chart, but I want to hear it from you. I don't want to read the chart to learn about you. I want you to tell me about you. And in doing so, that helps me. And I'm transparent with them. It helps me know what you're understanding, because this is a lot. This is a lot that you're going through and that is being thrown at you in a short amount of time. You have your first appointment with the doctor that's going over all these things, your appointment with the, the nurse coordinator to sign consent for evaluation, and they're going over all these things. So this is a chance for me to hear your story and also make sure what we have in the chart is correct. And I find that patients appreciate that because they'll say, oh, I forgot to tell the doctor. It's cute because sometimes they, you know, it's the little things and like, could this have been important? And so I say, you know what? I don't know, but I'm going to tell the team that and I'll, I'll throw it out in selection conference of honorable mention. They said that they had, you know, scarlet fever when they were a child and they didn't tell anybody yet. And so, you know, being able to even throw that that stuff out there to the docs, if you're reading the chart and something the patient told you is uh, not in there and you're able to, to help fill in the gaps. Again, not that you are responsible for the medical. We want to put that disclaimer out. This is not us saying you are responsible for the medical. You are not. We are social workers. We are not medical doctors, nurses, any of the medical disciplines. We are just medical, not just take the just out of it. We are medical social workers but we are not giving medical advice. And this is not us, Kristen and Tiffany, giving medical advice or suggesting that you do that. So I want to put that big disclaimer out there, but it is a lot. It's hearing from the patient. It's making them feel heard and then 
sharing is caring. If you do hear something, and because we're not medical professionals, I always would say that too in selection. I'm just the social worker. I'm being better at not saying just anymore, but I'll say I'm just the social (laughs) worker, but they told me that there's a latex allergy and that's not in the chart. Or they told me that they had an allergic reaction once when they were on prednisone. So it's being able to, to share that. And sometimes the there's been occasions where the patient, the physicians, excuse me, will say, oh, well, let's send them an allergy. <laughs> or the pharmacist speaks up and be like, they didn't tell me that when I was telling them about this medication. And it could be that maybe they felt more comfortable. Maybe it's things that as they're processing at the end of the day, all the discussions that are had, things are prompted. And then they say, I need to tell someone and I'm not sure who yet. So, hey, you're doing a lot of talking. Let me tell you, the social worker. And sometimes it takes asking the right question too, and asking it in a way that shows we are actively listening. And that's one of our skill sets too, because that's what we're trained on. So we're trained on the ability to actively listen to the patient verbally and non-verbally. So when they give nonverbal cues, that there may be something that they want to share a little more, but they may be apprehensive, we can probe, engage, and we can read that a little better. And that's one of the skills as a, just from, again, a general social perspective that we bring to the table in a medical setting. 100%. And it is bringing the, the skills that we have. It's, we kind of bring, I like to say too, we bring it together. You know, we are the logistics and sometimes logistics is their transplant plan planning. And sometimes it's they're explaining what life's like afterwards. And sometimes it's just filling in some of the gaps of, hey, I just want to tell you so that the patient knows that we've told you because it is it's about making the patients feel heard and, and understood. And that goes into helping build rapport. Uh, they could be coming to you and you're getting all this information and it's the first day that they've been at your institution. And they're like, this is a huge building. These are all people I don't know. And I'm telling them all about myself. It's helping that rapport build too. Well, and also medical history gives us insight into the family. And so when we ask about medical history, are we asking just the medical history of the patient or their family medical history? That's something that most people do, but uh, most people when I say that, I mean the medical team, most physicians offices, that sort of thing, they want to know, you know, what your parents' medical history is and that sort of thing. But that's important for us to know too, again, from a trauma-informed standpoint, because is there grief and loss associated with their medical condition? If there's a congenital condition and they've had family members die from this condition, what does that mean in terms of their, in terms of their response? And feeling their imminent threat to safety, that they've had a parent or a sibling die from the same condition, and now they find themselves in the hospital or being evaluated for transplant. Or to take it a step further, they had a con- uh, it's a congenital condition, and you have a family member who was evaluated for transplant as well, and they weren't a candidate. And now you're being evaluated and probably setting up that narrative that, well, they weren't a candidate, I won't either. Or, and this is the last example that I'll give uh, from my own experience, from a congenital uh, condition standpoint, or familial, that sort of thing. I've had patients whose parent is a transplant recipient, and then their child ends up being evaluated for transplant and getting a transplant. 
And so looking at the possibility of, especially if parent and child are being followed by the same program, dual relationships, conflict of interests, how do you handle that if you're the only social worker on your team? So looking at medical history, not only for the individual, but for the family as a whole. And that also goes into mental health history, psychiatric conditions within the family as well. Well, and that's something, again, bringing it back, governing boards, they want us to ask about family history of mental health. That's one of the questions um, that I know we ask at our, our institution. Again, there's the CMS guidelines, UNOS guidelines are always up for interpretation, but um, it, it, they do mention importance of understanding the family. And CMS has actually called that out once before uh, in interviews that I've done with them on, you know, what about the family history of substance use and family history of mental health? So it can help us understand the patient more but going back to your familial or you know you spoke a lot about congenital and then some familial and i think it's important to note of also looking at some of our unique conditions that might be hereditary that might be in the family and previously transplant wasn't an option for that diagnosis and so they watched their loved one go through this process of decline because transplant wasn't an option. And then there's almost that survivor's guilt in the patient because transplant now is an option for them. And bringing it around too, I I can remember a case where I learned some of the family history because when I go through the family history, I always ask about the medical condition of that individual as well. And I learned that there was a lot of uh, things that were associated and I was able to bring that up with the, the medical team. And that actually led to additional testing because it wasn't, you know, you get the big ones, is there heart disease, is there cancer, is there this and this and this, but then it's finding out that, oh, there was, you know, idiopathic X disease in them. And then they're coming to us for idiopathic in this and, oh, that's going to lead to some genetic testing. That's going to lead to, now we're going to add this test that we were kind of on the fence about, do we need it? Do we not? And so it's actually changed the, the course of testing for some patients. Again, not, not required, not medical. We're not saying that, but just saying that it does play a big part into the patient's psyche. And if they're bringing it up, sometimes you're the first one that they're bringing it up. I had a patient that, you know, watched their loved one, was a caregiver for their loved one, going through the same diagnosis, and then all of a sudden they got the diagnosis, and they're reliving that. They're reliving that situation as they're as now the patient, they're remembering the going into the hospital room, they're remembering the hospital and sometimes the same hospital. And so that plays a a part into how they're acting and reacting to situations. Exactly, exactly. And then the last thing I think that's worth us going over too, and we've talked about it throughout the episode, but revisiting the concept of insight. So I've recently reframed my own way of assessing for compliance, or at least the way that I document it, because I think that there is a misnomer out there that social workers are just looking for reasons to rule a patient out for these therapies. And and I think that that's a goal of ours too, is to just kind of squash that misnomer that what we're looking for is the, the cliffs that can we build bridges across or can we not? 
and utilizing resources that way. And the reason I bring that up is because when you're looking at insight and you're looking at compliance, if you have a patient who did not adhere to medical recommendations, did not comply or work cooperatively with their medical team, and that was a what ultimately was part of the path that led them towards end-stage organ failure, was not taking medications, not showing up to appointments regularly. I've adapted the way I document it on, can I find a correlation to that non-adherence to medical treatment or non-compliance? Is it behavioral or is it a, it, was there a barrier, like a social determinant of health? Was there logistical reasons why they couldn't come? Was there, an, uh, was there a, a health literacy barrier that caused an, an impact to their compliance? And then that helps me later discern, okay, what is my intervention strategy going to be? If it's behavioral, then do we have to look at uh, behavior modification or do we have to, not so much behavioral modification, but do we have to look at mental health follow-up, psychotherapy, psychiatry, or if it's a social determinant of health issue, then what do we look at in bridging those barriers in terms of uh, addressing the health literacy component? But then that goes into the medical history piece. So if you have a patient with poor health literacy or significant social determinants of health, lack of transportation, lack of adequate food and resources to food, lack of a, a social network within their community, then that may impact the way that they have insight into their medical condition, which then in turn impacts their compliance. You're, you're looking at perhaps the patient may not have followed those recommendations because they didn't realize the importance of it, given their education level, their emotional intelligence level, and health literacy. And so to just jump to the conclusion of they're non-compliant because they're non-compliant because they're non-compliant and that's the end of it, it's non-compliance. When there really could be so much more to it and starting with the medical history and the patient's insight into that can help you peel that onion back and look into it further. Ah, preach, sister. <laughs> it, it's so true with regards to, we are not here to look for barriers. We are not here to be the stopping point. We are here to help we are here to give the patients and the team, all of us, the best opportunities at success. And that looks different for every person. And that's why it's so important that our treatment plans are so individualized. But I think with that, we've, we've talked a lot and we've actually gotten a lot of uh, ideas, spinoffs for new episodes coming to <laughs> yeah. a podcast near you. But I think that... Um, we're going to go ahead and close here. I, I hope that what we've talked about is giving you some insight. Again, this is just our views and perspectives. This is in no way us trying to provide medical advice, trying to tell you how to do your practice, how, telling you to change your practice, but to give you our perspective and to give you an opportunity to consider and think about your practice and think about the ways that you do and is there opportunities I think that the biggest reason we always say that we're doing this is because we want to bring people together. We want to have conversations. We want to spark ideas, innovations, elicit discussions within the community of transplant and LVAD social workers. Because though we, we're out there, we just uh, can feel isolated sometimes because we're all scattered around the country. And so we'd love to hear from you. We hope that this gives you opportunity to discuss. We hope you reach out to us. And just remember to bet, 
together, if I can only do our tagline, together, (laughs) we are better. Exactly. And I also want to throw this out there too, for the listeners who, who do respond and have, um, have been responsive, we appreciate it so much. And I also want to throw it out there too. I want to learn from you guys out there. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is a two way street. We are in no way perfect. That's why it's called the practice of social work is because we are constantly practicing. We are constantly growing and we bring our strengths to the table. But each of you out there that's listening have your own strengths that brings to the table and they're different than ours. So if you find that there is a creative way that you assess for medical history or a creative way that you assess for a patient's insight and compliance, we want to hear from you. We want to hear about that. We want to share and make this a, a fluid com, uh, community that has communication. I want us to make sure that we can all learn from one another. So in no way are we the content experts. We're just the ones that talk the most. So <laughs> <laughs> I would but, say speak for yourself, but nope, you can speak for me. We, we definitely are the ones that talk the most. Yes. And that's okay. Again, strengths come into the table here from a strengths-based perspective Let's start the conversation because we know we're not afraid to. So we want to hear from you. Let us know if there's ways that you assess these that are unique and different. Give us a shout, post it on our social media, because we would love to, sh- uh, to hear from you and share that with everyone. So with that being said, Tiffany, do you have any beatbox moments, uh, any hoorays, hell yes, that you want to share with us? Um, you know, I think, I think that my biggest beatbox moment is I was able to start something at my institution that I'm pretty proud of. And it's very exciting because it makes the field of social work uh, a little bit more well-known. Uh, I was able to start a grand rounds for social workers at my institution. Yes. And we've had two sessions already. And um, I don't know. I'm very excited about it. I minimize it, but whatever. Here we are, listeners. I'm a private person, but I'm going to lay it all out there for you. I'm excited about this thing that I was able to do. So there's my BPAX moment. So for those of uh, our listeners that are not familiar with Grand Rounds, can you please explain what that is? Because I'll be honest, when I started in um, transplant and hospital social work, I had no idea what Grand Rounds were. Yes, I would love to share that is. And I wish that I had my um, application that I did to create it up so I could give you the history of it, of how it got started. It actually got started. Well, I don't want to speak out of terms, but it was started many years ago. Uh, We're talking decades ago, but in a hospital by a physician that felt we needed to have an opportunity for people to come together to learn. And that is learning about new policies or new workflows or from complex cases that have come across. It's an opportunity to share your skill set. So when you talk about the strengths base, if there's a specific topic that you are passionate about, that you are the expert at, uh, to go up there and teach your peers and to learn from your peers and the questions that they may ask. And so it's a way for us to elevate our profession. It's a way for us, when we talk about continuing education, you know, NASW puts it out there that that is something that is a requirement for social workers. But the reason for it is not just because, well, we need to get a certain amount for our licensure, but because we need to be able to continue our education, lifelong learners, because we are never going to know it all. And we should always be learning. When you feel like you are the expert at something or when you're not the expert, but when you feel you are done learning, 
then you are done with your profession. You can always learn. And being able to learn from individuals that have been through it, have done it, it's bringing the the evidence-based approach in there too. It's saying that we aren't just using our opinions and our skills. We're not just talking, but we have the backing. We have the articles. We have the clinical skill set. And this is a way for us to continue to improve our skill set, uh, to talk about research that we're doing, to be able to, to talk about research in the field. I know that they probably exist already. I'd love to hear what other people are doing if other people have social work grand rounds. Absolutely. And so with that, thanks for listening. We love hearing from our listeners. Um, shoot us an email, slip, slide up in our DMs, uh, follow us on, on social media. Um, and also, I... I do have to say this. Um, I know that every single podcast out there on the whole planet says this, but it actually does make a difference. Um, please rate, like, subscribe, all those things, because that's how we actually, like the algorithm or whatever is set up so that more people can discover us. So, And if, we're not saying that because we're trying to be, hey, we want more followers, but right. we want to teach more people. And, and we want to reach more people about what transplant and LVAD social work is because so many people still have no idea. And yeah. that's what our goal is. Sorry, Kristen, you can keep going. I just wanted to put that part out there. No, no. And I'm so glad that you did because that is exactly right. And you said it perfectly. So I have nothing to add to that. And please shoot us a message and let us know what you learned from this episode or what you think we can learn to make our, um, our approach better. So have a good one. We will talk to you soon. Bye. Deuces. The information shared on this podcast comes from two certified clinical transplant and mechanical circulatory support social workers. The views and opinions expressed are our own and not affiliated with any specific institution or organization, but to the community of transplant and MCS social work at large. Beats by Social Work, Tiffany and Kristen and affiliated guests and programs expressly disclaim any responsibility and shall have no liability for any damages, loss, injury, or liability whatsoever suffered as a result of your reliance on the information contained in this podcast or in any media. And none of the persons and entities noted above endorse specifically any tests, treatment, or procedures mentioned on the show. 
Our goal is to provide you with the most accurate information in the most respectful way. However, we are human and we ask for grace and accountability. If we say something you feel is incorrect or inappropriate, please tell us so we can correct ourselves and work to be better. Do not ignore inaccuracies or hold your feelings in. The only way to learn and ensure we do not make the same mistakes twice is to be made aware. That being said, our goal is to share information and to connect with our audience. But this is a new concept and we may fall short at times. So please be patient and respectful when you do call us out.